Thanks for joining the podcast of the River Anglican Church. If you've ever wondered how church structure works, today Jonathan's going to talk about that. A little bit about how offices like priest and bishop and things like that work. And so here is Jonathan. Well, good morning. Let's pray together, if you would. Lord, um, you are transcendent, uh, majestic, holy, powerful, accessible, caring, loving, imminent, powerful and mighty, Lord, to save. And Lord, we just worship you this morning for who you are, not for who we want you to be or who we wish you were, but who you are. And Lord, we ask that you would apprehend our hearts this morning. Give us comfort because you have ordained a way that the church would be led and structured and you have invited us to participate in it. Lord, help us to be excited and privileged by that invitation. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all this here on this cold and frosty morning. Um, just by way of announcement this morning, we had a, a really, really wonderful week, uh, whether or not you knew about it, that Flora McDonald Keatsman, I think we have some pictures, and Alex Paul Knees were born, yeah, this week. What did I get wrong? Did I say Alex? Sorry, Axel. Yeah, let's try that again. All right. Praise the Lord. There we go. <clears throat> Sorry, it's a little bit of mixing letters up there. But yeah, so really excited to have healthy mothers and healthy babies. And we have a few more uh, babies and mothers to, to be praying for and families to be praying for that are expecting. And so that's really exciting. Um, and today and next week, we're going to talk about uh, a topic that I don't think is, is spoken much in the church, and that is, you ready for this? The fourfold offices of the church. Have any of you ever heard, sometimes it's called threefold, sometimes fourfold. Have any of you ever heard a sermon on the threefold or fourfold offices of the church? Okay, there we go. There's one. All right, well, this is going to be new, and some of you say, well, what is it? And even if I understood what it was, why does it even matter? And that's completely, you know, it's a completely good question. Someone might be saying, man, this is going to be a snoozer. You know, bear with me. It's going to knock your socks off and change, change your life. Okay. But no, seriously, it's, it's an important uh, topic today. Uh, one reason that we're talking about today is because we're setting up the office of confirmation and we're going to talk about that later on because confirmation is really important. So this is kind of a background to confirmation, uh, as well as many other things. And it's important that we realize that God has set up a structure and in for what the church looks like. And we see this in the New Testament. We see it in early church history. It's important that we know why do we have bishops? Why do we have priests and deacons? And, and what is the laity? And all four of these offices are critically important for us to understand. And so we're going to begin with looking in the New Testament today. And then next week, we're going to, I'm going to show you in his church, early church history, kind of how this played out. And we're going to talk more about the applicability of it next week. But today we're just focused mainly on the New Testament. It won't be applicable at all. It'll just be focused on the New Testament. Okay. That was a joke and attempted humor. But so let's, by way of introduction, 
I want to talk about the, um, before we dive into the offices themselves, allow me to just paint a picture. So Jesus brings the good news, okay? Jesus is the good news. But it's Paul whose job it was to really take what Jesus had done, the foundation that he he had done. And actually, Jesus doesn't say a lot about the church, except for he talks about Peter. You're going to be the rock on which this church is built. But it's Paul is the one who really establishes the church. And Paul's the one who establishes authority and leadership in the church. And so although Paul's calling was to plant and establish these communities, When Paul began his personal ministry, what did he do? He actually went to Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church of Jerusalem, and he submitted his ministry to them. So he understood leadership. He understood that there was a system and a structure, even though it had not been really established. And he himself went to the leaders, and we read about this in Galatians. And here's what he writes in Galatians. He says, I went in response to a revelation. That was when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He said, and meeting privately with with those esteemed as leaders, in other words, Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church of Jerusalem, he said, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So he shared with them the gospel to make sure that the Didache, that means the apostles' teaching, was still uh, what was true and was good and what he was preaching was right preaching. And he said, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. I wanted to make sure that what I was saying out here was the same as what Peter, James, and John, that they were going to affirm me and espouse my ministry. And so he himself submitted to the leaders of Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews, which many scholars believe was written by the apostle Paul, says this about leadership and authority, that we see that it's not man who made leadership and authority, it's God who brought it into existence. Hebrews says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And so basically the backdrop before we get into these four offices, the backdrop is that there began to emerge in the New Testament a very different structure of leadership for how the church was to be governed. And it was something that God began to put into play uh, through Jesus, obviously, and also through the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to look for, we're going to look at four Greek words today, okay? You know, you can wow all your friends with these words. They're great party favorites, you know what I mean, and stuff. And so this is great stuff. So we're going to look at four Greek words that really kind of um, uh, represent each of the four offices. And they are, as you can see, Episcopus, Presbyterus, Diaconus, and Laos which means people. So I don't know why I put the only... Anyway, we'll just leave that. But so, and you know, these four offices really were for the first 16 centuries, this is the way the church was structured until the Reformation. In the Reformation, some churches decided, well, we don't really want to be structured this way. But as we can see, for the first 16 centuries, early as the first century, we see the emergence of these four offices, Episcopus and so forth. 
And so even now, over one billion people, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, as well as some Methodists, um, have this structure uh, of government. So the first word I want to look at is the word episcopus. That may sound a little familiar. It's the word we get episcopal from. And it's the basis of our word bishop, which is translated in the Bible as overseer. First Timothy 3 says this, and I, I put these on the slides. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And then Paul goes into what an over, the character uh, requirements of an overseer. The overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, and so forth, like Chris had read. Um, he says in verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, and so forth. And so in the New Testament, this term, overseer, episcopus, was used synonymously with elder. We don't see much of a separation between episcopus, bishop, or overseer, and elder. But as the early centuries emerge and as the church began to grow, we see that elders need to be pastored. They need to be bishoped. They need to be fed and nurtured and cared for and held accountable by someone different. So we see the emergence of Episcopus in the early church. But we also see this in the Bible. We also see the emergence of pastors, pastoring pastors, you know, bishoping pastors without even calling it as such. So let me give you some examples. Um, For example, Peter, James, and John, as I already mentioned, were in charge of the church of Jerusalem Paul comes and submits under them and says, look, I'm going to be ministering to the Gentiles. I'm sharing the gospel. Um, and he runs by them his doctrine, his life, his calling. And they say, you know, go with our blessing. Okay? Well, I already mentioned that. When a large dispute arose in the church about should they accept Gentile Christians, you remember this? This is Acts 15. When they, when they were deciding, should we accept Gentile Christians? Uh, a council came together at Jerusalem. We know it's Peter, James, and John, and other leaders as well. And they made a decision, a theological decision, and they even sent a letter, you might remember in Acts 15, saying, you know, abstain from, from idolatry and stuff like this. But basically, they were the doctrinal gatekeepers of, of the, this theological movement of the gospel. And that's one of the functions of Episcopus, is that, is that Episcopal bishop leadership um, are, are very much aware of what's happening in their group of churches and in their pastors doctrinally. And so in, in addition to making these key theological decisions, which has happened many, many times, we just said the Nicene Creed, by the way, which was one of those key doctrinal decisions that this, this creed that we say came together because a bunch of people decided, you know, we need a summary of the Christian faith, uh, especially as they were combating Arianism. And, uh, and so that's, that's how the, the creed came along. But in addition to be a theological gatekeepers, um, they, they were deciding, you know, who is going to be qualified to lead this gospel movement. And that's why Paul submitted to their ministry. So as Paul ministry, Paul's ministry would develop and grow, um, he himself would appoint elders over the many churches that he would, would plant. And so that is, again, an Episcopal function because he would plant the church, but then he would entrust elders. And so he was pastoring these elders. Well, one of the elders was Timothy, and he wrote two letters to Timothy 
to say, look, this is who I want you to be. This is how I want you to operate. You know, take a little wine for your stomach. And, you know, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he would give them all kinds of, uh, you know, advice about what the character of an elder needed to look like and so forth. And so um, there were many others who Paul entrusted with churches. In Acts 14, we read this. Okay, verse 21, they, Paul and Barnabas, preached the gospel in that city, won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Amen. They said Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. And so Paul himself really went from being kind of alone to to sharing the gospel, developing leaders, then entrusting those leaders to churches and becoming their Episcopates. Do you guys get bishop? Wow. Okay. So if the first office is Episcopus, overseer, bishop, the second one is presbyteros. Okay, this is the second word that you're going to use at the party that you you throw on on Friday to show off all these terms, okay? And that's translated presbyter or elder, okay, both in the New Testament and today. And the word priest that we use, which to scum is to scum, no, not to scum, to some is a scary term. I took the word scary and put it with some and made scum. But the term priest is a constricted form of the word presbyter. And so you look at the kind of derivation of the word presbyter, and that's how we end up with priest. It's it's kind of a shortened form. And so when you when you hear the word priest, then you just think presbyter, elder. So the term is used 76 times in the New Testament, and so elder is a really important word and a really important role. In the New Testament letter of Titus, Paul said that he let, left Titus on Crete in order to appoint elders in every town, just like we read uh, in that passage in Acts 14. And then he explains what character is needed, and I won't go through this whole, um, this whole passage because it was already read, but I'll just look at some excerpts, Titus 1.5. He said, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So not only is Paul appointing elders, now he's telling Titus to appoint elders. And so we have literally multiple generations of leadership, you know. Um, and so Titus is, in a sense, acting as a bishop or as a pastor to pastor, so forth. And then he goes through all of the character traits of elders. So as we can see, the primary trait of an elder, the role of an elder, was to, to pastor, to shepherd, to shepherd, to presbyteros, a local church, okay? It's to teach sound doctrine and refute error. But there's more. So here's a little story. Paul uh, lands in Miletus, and he calls the elders from Ephesus because there's several different churches that were planted in Ephesus in Asia Minor. And so he says, you know, come and join me, and here's what he says to them to do. Uh, he says, I want you to teach in public, like we're doing right now. And he says, and I want you to teach house to house. Um, so elders have not just a public role, like on in, in public worship, like on a Sunday morning, but suddenly he's painting the picture. They're not just 
they're not just, uh, you know, people up front on in, in corporate worship, but they're teaching from house to house. You are shepherds. You are pastors. Now, um, we see this in the Gospels, for example, in the scripture that was read today, because in John 21, what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times, feed my sheep. And so one of the primary jobs of a elder, a presbyteros, you know, is to feed the sheep of God. Peter gets this because Peter is, uh, you know, is commissioned by Jesus in John 21. And then he turns around and he tells people in his first letter, he says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So, you know, Episcopus is a pastor to pastor, a bishop, an overseer. We see this, how they are. Uh, we see multiple generations of leaders already, even in just the first 30 years of the church. But then we have elders, we have uh, presbyteros, we have, um, you know, shepherds on a local level. Then the third, then the third um, order is that of deacon. Now, Deacon is different than an elder, and, and I'll say why that is, but deacons are super important for the church to function, and equally just as important as elders or presbyteros, just with a different function. And Paul lays out the qualifications for deacons. We know they're really important because look what Paul says about deacons, and I do want to read this, okay? He says in 1 Timothy 3.8, he says, in the, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, okay? They're not to be people who say, you know, I, re- I really could never respect that person. They're to be sincere. They're not to be indulging in much wine. Now, it doesn't say anything about beer, but it does talk about wine, okay? Again, that was a bad joke. I'm sorry. Not really funny. Not pursuing dishonest gain. So, you know, no gambling. Scott and Jack and Mary. So I've had to kind of make that clear to them. Um, They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this is interesting. So deacons aren't just serving. They have to be theological. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. They must be theologically robust individuals. That's why our deacons, it's a year and a half to two-year process, and they're reading like 14 books for starters. And, I mean, it is a legit process. They must be tested. Verse 10, and if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, now get this, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate. Why is women appearing right in the center of this thing about deacons? He's talking about deacons. Deacons are only men. We all know that, right? But then he's talking about women. Oh, and then he goes back to deacons. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his household and children well. Now, what's interesting is that deacons aren't just men. I mean, there's a a woman deacon right in the Bible, Romans 16, that says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of of Kentray. So the reason that women are mentioned right in the middle of this passage is because there were women deacons and there were women who were leading in the New Testament church. I mentioned this Months ago, but I'll say it again. One reason we know this is because when Paul was arresting people in Damascus, it says that he was arresting not just men, but he was arresting women from house to house. Why was he doing that? Because this is one of the first times 
in the church since the judges in the Old Testament that women were leading in, in ministry. And so women were being arrested, which was unheard of in that day. So what becomes clear with deacons, just like elders and bishops, is that they're gifted in many different ways. Their main function is to serve. Diaconi means to serve. Sorry, I forgot to mention that small fact. But diaconi means to serve. So their primary function is serving. But they're also uh, gifted in many different ways. And so, for example, Stephen was a deacon, but he was an apologist. Nobody could refute Stephen. Stephen was really, really smart and really, really gifted. And that's one reason that they martyred him was because they couldn't stand against his teaching. So we have deacons who are evangelistic, deacons who are apologetic like Stephen, deacons who are pastoral like like John in the New Testament. Um, some are more judicial, you know, like James was judicial. These are not all deacons, but they're different personality types and different giftings. And some, you know, deacons are more apostolic. So a deacon, you know, can have a lot of different spiritual gifts, but their main function is to serve uh, the local church. And uh, that's all I'll say about that today. And then, um, you know, I did somehow skip over something that was really important. One reason that the office of deacon came out, I don't know how I skipped this. I think I got too excited about some of my my humor and how it was being received. But... um, Oh, yeah, I did skip this whole paragraph. I do want to say that in Acts 6, you know, the the, the elders, uh, well, I should say like um, the uh, the disciples were teaching and praying and all this kind of stuff, and yet they were also waiting on tables, and they were doing a lot of like functional tasks for the body of Christ. And they were like, we're burning ourselves out. We don't even have time to 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 pray and to teach because we're... We're doing all these other tasks for widows and and all the various needs of the church. And so that was a a real um, kind of placeholder in the church, so to speak, was when they appointed and prayed for deacons, and and Stephen was the first deacon. So I forgot to mention that. But anyway, let's move on. The last office is Laos. So we have Episcopus, bishop, in case bishop is overseer, doctrinal, uh, you know, making sure the doctrinal theological teaching of of their ministry, including pastors and all that, and the movement of the gospel, making sure that the people who are moving the gospel are um, are 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 supposed to be doing so and doing so well. Then we have elders who are overseeing local churches. We have diaconi who are serving in a variety of ways. And then this fourth office is laos. Now, Laos just means people. The word is used quite generally in the New Testament. Um, you know, so there's, if you're not any of those three, you are Laos. Um, this office is not overtly mentioned uh, as an office, but eventually it does become an office. Um, that's why some people talk about the threefold offices of the church, and I talk about the fourfold offices, um, and I'll say why that is an office in a minute. But, you know, layoffs are absolutely critical for the health and the welfare of a church. Um, I want to say that there are at least three reasons why layoffs, which is the people, um, you know, if you're not a bishop or a priest or a deacon, you are layoffs, is critical for three reasons. And first is because God uses many people in the New Testament who are layoffs, who are not called like Paul or not like disciples of direct disciples of Jesus 
who, who walked with Jesus. First, ex- examples of Laos who God used mightily was Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were just, you know, your average people. They worked, you know, normal jobs, but they became converts and they discipled Apollos. And Apollos became really influential in the development of Corinth and the churches of Corinth and Ephesus. Um, think about lay people like who supported the ministry financially of Jesus and Paul. So they didn't have to go out and try to work as they were ministering. Paul did a little bit of, um, a little bit of that, but, but, but he was still able to really focus because of the, uh, the layoffs and the financial generosity of people who underwrote his ministry. Think about the woman in Samaria who was a layoff and she was converted and her testimony converted her many people in her village was used in her village. Think about uh, the beggar outside the gate beautiful in the book of Acts who was converted and 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 he was converted through this miracle and his testimony where he jumped up and started praising God was like an object lesson for Peter's first sermon in Acts that converted 3000 people. So Laos, it's not just like man the disciples are superstars and you know you're Peter, James and John and all these no I mean God's using everybody Every, every person. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because, oh yeah, there we go. Um, the sheer lack of people just looking at, at ministry, I don't know, uh, let, let's just say ministry after the New Testament, the number, sheer number of people who are not ordained, the sheer number of people who are not bishops, priests, or deacons, so, for example, in this church or in, in 95% of churches, you rarely have a bishop as part of a church. Um, there are maybe one priest, maybe two, um, and there are some deacons. But the rest of the people are laos. And so just out of sheer numbers, um, the laos are absolutely critical to the ministry of a church. And many of you are involved in groups. You're teaching one another. You're caring for one another. Um, you're correcting erroneous ways that people are thinking and you're refuting error and saying, well, let me, let me, let me kind of challenge that thought. Um, and so forth. And so the, the layoffs are absolutely critical for the ministry of a church because there's just a couple of us clergy and, um, a lot more layoffs. And so you are absolutely essential to the ministry of the gospel, not just in the church and in the world because you know, as Ephesians 4 says, like my job and many of the clergy's job, our job is to equip the saints, what does Ephesians 4 say, for the work of the ministry. So our job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. We don't have to work at all. But no, seriously, so our job is to really equip you and to make it possible for you to do what Ephesians 4 says is the, I'm glad you got that, the work of the ministry that could have gone really badly. But so third and finally, the third and final reason that layoffs are really critical is that spiritual gifts are given to everybody. It's not like, oh, well, you know, only bishops are given spiritual gifts and priests and deacons. But the, the Bible makes no distinction between layoffs and you know, diaconi or presbyteros, and now that you know all these really cool words that you can throw around, the, the Bible makes no differentiation between those and spiritual gifts. 
So as a Christian, everyone is called to ministry. Every one of you is equipped for ministry, and every one of you is, believe it or not, given gifts for ministry. It doesn't matter what age you are. Um, it's a gift when you become saved. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit gives you gifts. Just a couple of verses to, to show you that I'm not just making this up. Ephesians 4 says this, But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ is saying, I'm going to give this here, this there. I'm going to give this much of this. And and then then he goes through in that passage and says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Friends, these are not necessarily offices. These are gifts of apostolic gifts, you know, prophetic gifts, evangelistic gifts, pastoring gifts. And these are not just like for people like myself. You know, you don't get like a you know, if you get paid, you get more of the gift, right? Okay, so you get the idea. So 1 Corinthians 12 says this, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then in that chapter, first, he goes through the spiritual gifts. Romans 12, also a spiritual gifts passage. He says, For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to the others. We have differing gifts according to the grace given. That grace word grace is the word, you know, charismata, charisma, you know. According to the, the charisma, the, the gracious gift of God given to each one of us. So John MacArthur says this, as I begin to wrap up here, um, John MacArthur says this, not to use our gift is an affront to God's wisdom, a rebuff of his love and grace, and a loss to his church. We did not determine our gift, deserve it, or earn it. Do you believe that? We did not determine our gift. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But we all have a gift from the Lord, and if we do not use it, his work is weakened and his heart is grieved. Now, obviously, you know, some of the other stuff, the Episcopus and Presbyteros, you might file away, you know, you might say, I don't really see the applicability of it. Hopefully next week you'll see more of the applicability of it as we unpack it. But this is the takeaway for you guys today, is that God has given you a gift, some multiple gifts. And Those are to be used for the building of the body of Christ and the world. So all of us are called to certain offices. And you're like, wait a second. I thought I'm not called, I'm not a deacon or I'm not a priest or a, but all of us are called. That's why there are four offices of the church. And in the Anglican church, we have this thing called confirmation. And I love it. I just discovered it a couple years ago. I just really thought confirmation was for youth. I mean, I'm still learning with you guys. I'm still like an accidental Anglican, right? So I'm still learning. Oh, yeah, kids are confirmed. That's where they like accept Jesus, you know, when they're 13 of the right age, you know? Well, that was partially true. <laughs> but as adults, um, really confirmation is lay ordination. And the only person who does confirmations is the bishop because it's ordination into the church with a big C. It's not into ordination in the local church, into the river. It's lay ordination into the global, worldwide, eternal church of Christ. And that's why only a bishop does it. 
And so in March, the bishop will come and he'll lay hands. And Bishop Steve, I love the stories he tells. Now, this will be Bishop Quig doing this. But Bishop Steve told me this is one of the most powerful, wonderful thing he does because he always prays that the Holy Spirit will give him, you know, individual particular words of affirmation for the people that he prays for. And he prays that they will receive, you know, special giftings for ministry. And so I hope you'll consider when he uh, Bishop Quig comes in March, as we continue to teach on what confirmation is, because this isn't the only like one hit wonder on, you know, confirmation. As we continue to teach about it, I hope you will consider that this is really your calling into ministry, your calling and equipping in ministry to the church. Okay. And next week, I'm going to, in addition to just kind of giving some historical backdrop and some more application, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, in the spirit of all these is mutual submission. The spiritual, the, the, the spirit of my relationship with my bishops is mutual submission. I submit to them, but they're also incredibly humble. And so there's mutual submission. There's servant leadership that we serve one another. Because one expression that we use is that we were all a deacon first. No bishop was not a deacon. No priest was not a deacon. We're all a deacon first. And so we're going to talk a little bit next week about mutual submission and accountability because there's incredible accountability been in, built into this system. You can call and talk to the bishop anytime and talk about what a horrible person I am. I make jokes about gambling in church and stuff like that. You know, you have incredible. So there's really good accountability in our system. So these are critical in a healthy movement that there's mutual submission, servant leadership, and accountability. Okay, so as we go to prayer... I have three questions for you to think about, okay? And these will also be in e-news. It's just a reminder, uh, but if you don't read e-news, you're going to miss these questions and your life is going to remain absolutely the same, okay? It will not be changed the way it would if you really think about these. So the first question is this. What is the importance of these offices for the church? So why do we need diaconi and presbyteros and episcopus and laos? Why do we need all these offices? And what is the importance for you personally? Like, what does it matter that you're a deacon, Scott, or that you're a priest, Chris, or that you're laity? We don't have any bishops here yet, but maybe that'll come down the road. It won't be me, I don't think. I don't necessarily want their job. Um, secondly, how do you find yourself responding to these offices? And how do you find yourself responding to authority? I'll tell you what, I had huge problems with authority in my 20s. It was like 25 when I suddenly realized that police, men and women, were actually like real people. You know what I mean? They were just authority figures to me because I spent a lot of time running from police in my teens. But, I mean, you know, so it's true. But anyway, there's stories down there. But the point is that, like, what is your relationship to authority and what is your relationship to the offices? What do you think about deacons and what do you think about priests and what do you think about yourself and the importance of laos, of being a lay person in the church of God, a lay person who can be lay ordained in the church of God. And third, in what ways is God calling you to a great understanding? And this is part of it, the understanding, this time we spend today, but also a commitment to your present office, to your role as, you know, a bishop or not a bishop, but a laos or a deacon or a priest in the church. So I want us to think about these offices, think about how we interact with them, think about how maybe God's calling us to a deeper commitment 
to them. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you um, for teaching us today. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to learn a bit more about these offices that were not man-made, but they were offices that you put into place. Help us to, Lord, grow in greater respect. Um, you call you call certain things holy and you call certain things profane, and you've actually called these offices and leadership and authority in the church. You've said that this is special, this is different. It doesn't mean that we're all untouchable, that we're all perfect, but it does mean that um, this is something that you've you've put in place just like marriage um, and said this is really important. Um, we can see the importance that it that exists in the New Testament on submitting to the those in authority above us, to respecting them, to praying for them, to empathizing with them, but also the importance of embracing the role that you have given us in this church of the living God, which is so important to you. Help us to take serious things seriously. Help us to treat things that are holy with respect. Um, And help us, Lord, to understand as you understand the preciousness of leaders and of authorities and of the different offices that you have placed. And Lord, help us to grow in maturity in our ability to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverinrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 915 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.